Hey, movie fans, and welcome back to another episode of the Uncharted Media Podcast. This is episode 66. Uh, Today, we will be talking about something that, believe it or not, I'm actually amazed we have not gotten to sooner. Um, Josh and I talk about our favorite comic book movies a lot and our favorite comic book characters, but we never actually have talked about directly uh, our favorite comic book stories and storylines. So that's what we're going to talk about today in connection with the news topic that we're going to talk about in a little bit. Uh, but first, Josh, how are you doing tonight? I'm chilling like a villain, bro. Uh, getting slowly back into the swing of things as far as training and uh, shows every weekend and trying to balance that with work and whatnot. So, you know, it's it's, it's getting there. We're, 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 uh, this is my... It's my little refuge here. Besides watching, uh, catching up on you know with The Witcher and all the other. There's so much stuff out there to watch right now. Yeah, absolutely. As you're saying that, I was watching um, Dracula on Netflix, and it's really, really good so far. Um, but let us not delay any further, because good grief, do we have a lot of news to go over this week? Well, and not just that, we've got some stuff that is actually surprising to me. Yeah, we got a lot of surprising stuff, just a lot of stuff in general. Uh, but first, before we get to any of that, uh, we got to get to stuff that Josh does not like out of the way first, but it's still big and newsworthy. Oh? So the Academy Award nominations came out oh. Monday morning, and for the first time ever... I feel like I've actually seen quite a few of the movies that were actually nominated this year for different things. Okay. <laughs> some of them are a bit surprising. Others uh, were pretty safe. So we'll just briefly go over some of the big ones. Um, lead actor. Obviously, we've got Leonardo DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Adam Driver in Marriage Story. Joaquin Phoenix for The Joker. Uh, Jonathan Price for The Two Popes. The Two Popes has been getting a lot of buzz. And honestly, two days ago, I never even heard of it. Um, yeah. And the one that's kind of out of left field, uh, Antonio Banderas, of all things. Yeah. Uh, for a movie called Pain and Glory. Josh, have you heard of this one? I have not at all. That's the in I mean, I know I'm going to toot this horn as, as hard as I can all the time during this season. But, you know, like some of these movies that I, I, I not even as big as things like the peanut butter Falcon or lighthouse. Like I couldn't, I could, I knew they were coming out. I just couldn't go see them. You know what I mean? But like these movies, I didn't even know they existed. Yeah. Uh, so then going down to uh, supporting actor, Tom Hanks and a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Thank goodness. Um, yeah. Anthony Hopkins. And again, the two popes never heard of it, but okay. Uh, Al Pacino and Joe Pesci, both for the Irishman and Brad Pitt in once upon a time in Hollywood. Um, uh, skipping down to one that makes us both happy, I'm sure, uh, believe it or not, is supporting actress. Why do I bring this up? Um, because our girl Florence Pugh got nominated. What? She got nominated for Little Women. Oh, okay, cool. But still, I, when I saw that, I was just like, good job. We gave you the MVP earlier award. Now, now you probably have a bigger, a bigger award on your mantle, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, Scarlett Johansson has now actually been nominated for both supporting actress and lead actress. Wait for for what? Uh, she 
gets nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Jojo Rabbit and uh, Lead Actress for Marriage Story. Oh, jeez, man. I can't believe I forgot about Jojo. I need to watch. I need to get a copy. Yeah, I needed to track that movie down. Uh, Best Animated Feature. We both can walk away happy here. Uh, How to Train Your Dragon got nominated for Best Animated Feature. Yeah. Along with I Lost My Body. I don't know if I know that one. Um, I've I've seen bits and pieces, and it's interesting to say the least. Uh, Klaus, I'm assuming that's Santa. I'm not sure. Um, um yes. Uh, Missing Link by Leica Studios. Oh, really? Okay. Yep. And Toy Story Four. Uh, I feel pretty confident saying that's going to be Toy Story Four. It's not a very competitive field this year. Yeah. I mean, How to Train Your Dragon was good, but it's definitely nowhere close to the other two. Um, I'll, of course, be paying attention to very carefully to the cinematography category. Um, of course, as usual. I feel like it's a given that 1917 is probably going to win that, but I think it's worth noting that one of the nominees was The Lighthouse. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, the Irishman, Joker, The Lighthouse, 1917, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, good job, The Lighthouse. Uh, it's... Um this is I hope this starts the trend of more independent movies with really original content um you know starting to be recognized more because geez man um costumes the Irishman Jojo Rabbit Joker Little Women Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I feel like um Once Upon a Time in Hollywood probably either that or Little Women just because Hollywood loves period style stuff they do for some reason um best director um the Irishman Joker, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Parasite. Um, Interesting. I think it's a two-horse race here between 1917 and Parasite. I I would agree. Parasite seems Um, to be like the sleeper of all of these, and if I could find a way to watch it, I would. mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Jeez, man. The big big story about Parasite that I've been hearing about anyway is uh, some people have been saying that it would do better if they would release an English version of it. And the pushback that I've seen from that is uh, like, well, how are you going to cheapen foreign film by making it – like force it to be in English? Like, you know what I mean? So it's Yeah, the director has been very vocal about this movie needs to be one with subtitles because it teaches cultured people to watch subtitled movies. Yes, agreed. And you know what? I don't care who what, what y'all think of me. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously that I've watched subtitles all the time with my obsession of martial arts movies, but um, you know, even anime. So there's there's some fantastic stories that you can get wrapped in, up in just by being okay with watching subtitles. Oh, definitely. Um, then we've got best original score, Joker, um, who actually won the I believe Golden Globe, um, oh, which okay. is pretty cool. Little Women, which um, wouldn't have been a big deal, but I'm just now noticing that it was Alexander Desplat, who is an awesome composer, needs more uh, attention. Marriage Story by Randy Newman. Interesting. I didn't realize he did music for Marriage Story. Sad couple, broken couple, hardly Hmm. there. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a race. And then I think <laughs> I, I definitely think you're more excited about this stuff than I am. So um, I think this 
again, 1917 on this list. I think 1917 is in danger of winning a lot of these movies. Also, it helps that Thomas Newman did the music. Yeah. I, because the, Thomas the Newman thing, is a beautiful composer. <laughs> Have you seen 1917 yet? It is uh, my goal for this week. I'm going to see either Wednesday or Thursday I have off. So that's like my top priority. It was either that or Uncut okay. Gems. And Uncut Gems was completely snubbed out this year. So Really? Yes. Um, it's not so much I've like heard. a now I feel like I don't need to see Uncut Gems, but it means 1917 takes more priority. Yeah. Because, I mean, I've heard really good things about oh, uh, so have Uncut I. Gems. Um, so, so then, um, just a couple others, um, that, uh, oh yeah, original, that's what I was looking for. Knives Out did get a nomination for, uh, original screenplay. So nice no, to see okay. that got something. Um, yeah. Adapted screenplay, The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Little Woman and Two Pups. The Joker has 11 nominees. Nominations, Jeez, I mean. Well, I mean... It de- it definitely if anything it definitely deserves those those honors. I mean, no matter what your opinion on how good the movie was, it's very well done. Now, um, this the category of movie that everyone has probably seen, so we appeal to the mass audience is uh, best visual effects. That's Avengers: Endgame, The Irishman, Lion King, nineteen seventeen, and Rise of Skywalker. Um. I say it's either Endgame or Lion King because Irishman honestly does not look that good from a visual standpoint. Yeah, it looks pretty normal. And Lion King, while I didn't think the movie was that great, the visuals are excellent for it. So, yes, I wouldn't be surprised. If, I wouldn't be at all shocked if they do give it to Endgame, though, just kind of as like that's their consolation pat on the back prize of, oh, good job. you did. You did your little superhero thing for a decade here's your visual effects award yeah uh then lastly before we move on to actual news this week uh the best picture nominees are for v ferrari the irishman jojo rabbit joker little women marriage story 1917 once upon time in hollywood and parasite um so pretty stacked lineup this year. Uh, Josh, off the top of your head, hearing all those names, is there a clear-cut favorite to you? I mean, I haven't seen 1917, but with all of the buzz around it, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it's already got, what, the 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 um, best picture from, what was it, Golden Globes? I think so. I'm not sure. Oh. Whatever was a couple weeks ago, they they got best picture and best director, I think, if I'm right. Um, so I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I would like to see Parasite get some bigger, bigger buzz, but you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think 1917 is starting to get some momentum in its favor, um, but we shall see. Um, now, there is so much news. This is our first news of 2020, and boy, do we have a lot to get caught up on, and it feels like we got a bunch in the past few days. Or in this case, what we got earlier today, at least in terms of day recording, um, I knew this trailer was dropping uh, this morning. I was not expecting to like this trailer as much as I did. I'm, of course, talking about Jared Leto's Morbius. Um, Dude. 
you and I both said last week on our predictions video that we thought this movie was going to flop. This movie still might have that chance. There's always a chance any movie could flop. But in terms of doing a complete 180 after a trailer, this trailer absolutely did its job of getting me hyped. Holy crap, did I dig this trailer. Oh, same. Uh, especially, like, I was already digging it, and that little bit at the end. Oh, oh yeah, we'll so, talk about that in a second here. Yes. Um, okay, so first of all, Jared Leto is... He's not his typical, like, wooden, just kind of dreary kind of, you know, aura that he gives off normally. He looks exactly like his character in Blade Runner 2049. He does, but with emotions. Well, isn't he an android in Blade Runner? Yes. That, that so was that's, my, that was, that's why. That was, that, that, was my, that was my point. That was my joke. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it for ruining the joke, David. Appreciate it. <laughs> we can bag on him for Suicide Squad. I'm I'm refusing to bag on him as an actual actor. Yes. Oh, I agree. Um, because it looks like he's actually been being given a lot to do in this film. I will say, as soon as the trailer started, I could tell that this was in the Sony Venomverse. It just, from mm-hmm. an aesthetic standpoint, they did a good job of making it feel like it exists in that same world. Yes, which like, is interesting, cons- all things considered. Say again? I said, which is interesting, all things considered, with, with what we get at the end. Yeah, um, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, I'm so hyped about it, I can't. <laughs> yeah, like I want to I wanna make sure we get everything about the trailer before we talk about the big yep. thing that's yep. impacting the future of this series. Um I like that this movie's not shying away from Morbius's horror elements. Like, if your character is literally called Morbius the Living Vampire, there's no way you can't make this not horror-related. And they don't yeah. give away too much, but they give you just enough of a tease to get you interested, while also not feeling like New Mutants. Yes. Well, and I think the other thing that is interesting to me is he's coming at it from a scientific point uh, point of view as well. He's not just like, well, I like vampires. Let's try time to be a vampire. Um, if I had one nitpick about the trailer that or something that just didn't really work or gel for me was the music. I thought it was a very odd choice. Yes. I mean, it was odd and in some Parts I, I I liked how odd it was, but it almost like in much in much of you know Jared Leto's performance as Joker, it was a little too odd. Yeah. So before we talk about the big reveal, let's talk about that. Um, what would have been the stinger of the trailer, like the big hook before that post credits of the trailer, which is that very 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 brief glimpse. As him as the vampire. Chills, dude. Holy crap, does he look good. I mean, I was not expecting them to go full on, but they're going full on. No, no, I won't say they go full on until I see him with a very deep V-neck with red lapels. (laughs) And wings. Then they will, then to me, they're going full on. I mean, honestly, though, I wouldn't be surprised if they go all the way. Honestly. He already is sporting a pretty deep V-neck through most of this movie. I mean, yes. I mean, and the shape that he's gotten into for this specifically is a lot different from the the shape that he does in other movies as well. But yeah, uh, that 
like when he like turns his head and shows his fangs, I was like, that's mm. Morbius. Mm. Now like, you just need him cow. to fight Blade, but um, too bad Blade's in the MCU. Oh, wait, this movie might actually be in the MCU. Let's talk about that stinger. Holy crap. I liked but didn't love this trailer until that moment. I have never sat up so quickly in my life. Um, Josh, I'll give you the honor of explaining to the audience, what is this holy crap moment we're talking about? Well, so it happens like right after the he, they do the, the big reveal of Morbius, you know, for that split second. And the, the camera goes black. And then you hear... I think I forget what the line is. I was like, oh, so you got tired of doing the good thing, good guy thing, huh, Doc? And it's and Morbius turns the corner, turns around, and there's Vulture right there. And it's Michael Keaton's Vulture. Dude. Oh, my goodness. So the big thing, and I don't know if you noticed this, but I caught this upon watching, watching it back. Murderer? Yes. Oh my gosh. I was like, wait. Okay. I have so many questions about that. Well, so. Because that's not Tom Holland's Spider-Man. Except, I guess, technically speaking, if you don't know all the details of what happens in Homecoming, you can almost assume that Spider-Man murders Vulture. Wait, no. No, 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 no! I'm, I'm rolling that back. I'm sorry, because he, Vulture doesn't die at the end, does he? Uh, I'm, I'm, no, Vulture's still alive. Um, yeah, that's what I thought. You mean he killed Mysterio? Um, but I—that's true. It's a cool tease, but it leaves me more confused than awesome. This is ties into the MCU because that's not Tom Holland's Spider-Man. That's uh, Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. If you look co- closely enough. Mm-hmm. Also. Um, someone pointed out, and I completely agree, of that's a picture of Spider-Man from the Spider-Man 4 PS4 game with the mm-hmm. Tobey Maguire skin. Yeah. I'm so confused right now with this tie-in. But, I mean, <laughs> dude, let's go. I, uh. I'm still sticking with my hunch that I said at the beginning of the year, Tom Holland is showing up in Venom 2. If we're getting these teases... That other people are showing up um, in, like, Morbius and whatever to flesh out this world. Notice it feels like it's taking place in Seattle. And I showed Heather the trailer for Morbius. She really liked it. Um, and she brought to my attention, she's just like, doesn't Vulture's family, like, move to Seattle? Or, like, he goes to prison in Seattle or something like that? I'm just like, yeah, that's a that's a good call. That's true. Because yeah. doesn't Venom take place uh, that takes place in San Francisco, but it's West Coast stuff away from yeah. all the Avengers stuff. Which is interesting. And that maybe totally not films... at all accidental. Yeah, oh no, not at all. <laughs> if anything, it gets me very excited and I feel more the tangibilization that maybe we're slowly inching towards a Sinister Six movie. That oh, being and... said... St- Morbius, you better be staying away from the Sinister Six because Morbius as a character has never once joined the Sinister Six. He's at his core. Actually, Morbius is not a villain. He's actually more, probably more of a hero than Venom is. Yes. Morbius is a very interesting, like, gray area character. He's always really intriguing to me when I read stories about him in the comics. Like, yes, he's he's fought Blade and whatnot, but he's, he's got a code. 
Yeah, he's nowhere near an anti-hero either. He's not like... Yeah, he definitely leans weird. a little bit more towards the good than the bad. Yeah, which is which is going to make this movie even more interesting because it looks like Morbius goes on a tear. And I'm excited. Yes, um, oh, absolutely. So yeah, color me impressed. I've never had a trailer turn me around so quickly before, at least in a positive direction. I've had ter- trailers turn me off really quick, but I don't know if I've ever had a trailer turn me onto a project this quickly. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, however, there's another trailer that dropped recently that actually did turn me around in a slightly positive direction, and that was the uh, one, The Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. That dropped a trailer over the weekend, and I will say, uh, guys, you probably should have opened with this trailer instead of have this be your final trailer a few weeks before the movie comes out. Yeah. This was a far better trailer than everything we've got so far. No, I agree. And it, it it still doesn't give you really any insight to what the full story is. But, but it gives you it enough of you... a story tease of like how everyone yeah. connects to each other. Well, and I actually kind of laughed at the opening that opening bit of like, yeah, Joker and I are broken up and it's completely mutual. And you see the ace factory blowing up in the background. <laughs> and then she's got the cheese whiz. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I enjoyed that was a really good opening segment. Like that's how you, like if you want to get me behind Harley, like yeah, like don't make her this, just this crazy girl that goes turns into somebody normal. I mean that doesn't make sense. Which actually, there's a moment, there's a Harley moment that I actually liked better. That was like my favorite, at least Harley moment of the trailer, just because it was just like yes. You nailed Harley. That's an element of Harley that we never really talk about that much. Of it's when the gang's all together and uh, she's standing next to Huntress and she says something about like revenge very, uh, very rarely ever brings the catharsis that we so desperately desire. And I'm just going, is that your therapist side coming out? <laughs> because so rarely we ever talk about Harley Quinn is actually an incredibly intelligent character. She has exactly. her master's degree. It's oh, dude! I heard I popped for that. I thought that was so funny. I was just like, yes, she's crazy. She's not dumb, um, and just yeah. that type of bringing into humor. Um, I I kind of really liked Mary Elizabeth Winstead in this trailer. I've shown a little bit more personality. I've just like kind of reluctantly joining the team. Also, I may or may not have seen leaked photos of her in the Huntress costume. She does oh? get the costume in the movie. Oh, but let's talk about the real costume of this movie. The thing that I'm sure was only in this trailer to calm the nerves of nerds like me that was beginning to doubt that it was ever going to be in the movie. Of course, I'm talking about the black mask for Roman Sionis, Hugh McGregor's character. And oh, my God, black mask looks perfect. Oh, dude. As soon as I saw it, I was like, oh. Yep, okay, yep, okay, yep, we're, do, we're, do, we're going all the way with this. All right, heard. My only nitpick, <laughs> and it's a super weird one, is yes, we've got the great black mask. Um, I've seen leaked pictures of him um, in action in the movie and of, like, toys of what he's wearing, and it's kind of like a maroon and gold suit, and I'm just like, oh, we couldn't get the white suit, but I guess this is okay. Yeah, I'll take I'll take what I can get at this point. My hope is in this movie that he has the black mask for quite a bit and something happens in the movie that he can't take it off anymore, like in the comics. Like in the comics, Black Mask like 
something happens and it like melts to his face or something. So he, <laughs> that's why they call him Black Mask is because that's just his face now. He can't do anything about it. So I kind of hope yeah. that happens in the movie of either they do some like acid or something um, to make Black Mask. That That's just his face now. Yeah. I will say though, the end of the trailer kind of killed my vibe a little bit. I love seeing... Uh, that she's got a hyena now. It's just like, yes, that's classic Harley. I thought the Bruce Wayne joke was so cringy. Oh yeah, it was it was bad, but it was also like, okay, yeah, that's where we are. We're we're okay. That's fine. No, it was it just that joke just killed it for me. I was just like, really, we have to make a yeah. blatant Batman reference and just a bad one with that. It just did not work for me. <laughs> Yeah. I still no, very much have that. my doubts about this movie, but this trailer was starting to win me over. It made me go from probably not going to see it to I will at least see this in the theater. I don't know about opening weekend, but I'll at least see this once type yeah. of thing. Yeah, no, I feel that. Now, we switch from DC to Marvel to some rather unfortunate news, and that is that um, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness director... Uh, Scott Derrickson, who directed the first Doctor Strange, took to Twitter and all the uh, media outlets to publicly announce that he has left the project and will no longer be directing in the Multiverse of Madness, uh, citing creative differences within Marvel. And all of us are just going, oh, crap. Because if we're being honest, a lot of us are super looking forward to in the Multiverse of Madness just because that seems to be the one that is circled on a lot of people's calendars of upcoming Marvel movies as... This could be where a lot of new and interesting directions are introduced and a lot of new and interesting characters, i.e. Fantastic Four, X-Men, could be introduced. Yeah. And this is not a good sign. Marvel, aside from Joss Whedon and Patty Jenkins in Thor 2, Marvel doesn't really lose directors. That's a that's a Lucasfilm thing. Yeah. Or a DC thing. Um, but I in the interesting part, too, is that I saw the, the, the quote I saw said it was quote unquote mutual. And nah, so I that's, don't that's both companies being about face here. Yeah. That's, mm-mm. that just makes me nervous. Cause I am actually really excited for this. So time for my tinfoil hat section of the show, but I won't label this as a conspiracy theorist. I think this is a very strong theory that I'm going to put forward there. Probably one of my better conspiracy theorists out there. Um, I think he had a certain vision of what he wanted to do, more horror-related, and Marvel Mm. got a little nervous about what he wanted to do. Because Scott Derrickson, as a director, comes from a horror background. He still um, is responsible for the... One of the single scariest movies I've ever seen. And it's the only horror movie that's actually kept me up at night. The first Sinister movie. So thanks yeah. for that, Scott Derrickson. Um, and so after the first Doctor Strange, when they were talking about Doctor Strange 2, he's really hoping, and he went out publicly numerous times saying, this will be the first horror MCU movie. And that got a lot of people, myself included, excited. And I think even Kevin Feige said it would be a horror movie. But I think Kevin Feige's idea of a horror movie is different than Scott Derrickson's idea of a horror movie. Yeah. I get this feeling that Kevin Feige was like, it's a horror movie and was thinking about Cabin in the the Woods. (laughs) Even then, that's 
that you can't even get away with Cabin in the Woods in the MCU because Cabin in the Woods is definitely an R-rated movie. Um, and I don't think we'll ever see an R-rated movie in the MCU just because MCU has established this brand and hard horror, like New Mutant style or even Morbius style, I don't think will go in the MCU. And so I think he left because they have this, in the multiverse of madness, they like want to do all these bold new things of bringing in a whole bunch of things. And I think Scott wanted more of a horror edge to it. Yeah. Which I don't blame him in the slightest, but I also don't blame Marvel. I'm If they have a certain direction that they want the franchise to go, they have enough of a proven track record to me that I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. And also if Scott Derrickson just really wasn't feeling it and he wanted a certain thing, he has every right to leave. I think, I actually do believe this might have been an amicable, amicable split of Scott wanted more horror and Marvel just wanted to play it a little... They wanted some horror, but not as much as he was willing to. And I think he just wanted to stick to his guns. Yeah, and that's that's to... totally fine on his part. Um, I just yeah. hope that if we're going to be director hunting for a little bit, that they push the film back at least because... Rushing a film into production is just as hazardous as finding the wrong director. Yeah, it. Mm. Do we? Does anybody know if James is up to anything? <laughs> uh, James Gunn is like the busiest guy right now. If he's oh, he's doing no. Suicide Squad right now, and then he's doing Guardians of the Galaxy three. So he's a little preoccupied. Oh, I meant sorry. I meant Wu. James Wan. Oh gosh. Hi, welcome to the podcast where Josh thinks he knows what he's talking about and Nathan corrects him and puts yeah, everything James in the Yeah, James Wan is doing Malignant later this year and then Aquaman 2. I thought for a second you were talking about uh, John Woo, who did Mission Impossible 2 and Face Off, in which case, <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Doctor Strange summons doves <laughs> like a cheap magician. And, and does and does the whole... The whole uh, shtick with with the Nicolas Cage does in the opening of that film. Oh, my gosh. He just switches faces with Andrew Scott, who played Moriarty. <laughs> oh, I just man, imagine I like an incredible Burt Wonderstone-type scene with Doctor Strange and doves. I can, I'd be down, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I saw a great meme of this, and it's completely true. In the world of Marvel, it's a soul for a soul because it seems like when we lose a guy, we gain a guy. And it's not a guy that I would have picked in a million years. That guy is Christian Bale. Um, it seems like Christian Bale is in talks to join the next Thor movie, Thor, Love and Thunder. Um, what? Okay. <laughs> okay, sure. um, what? And um, Kevin Feige, is it too much to ask if he's joining? Can he please be Beta Ray Bill? <laughs> I would you know pay what? good money to see Christian Bale in a mocap suit being a gigantic space horse. <laughs> you know what? I was going to ask you too of what who you think you would like who you would cast him as because like right now I don't know who I, I'd have him as. Oh he's no, so me neither. Versatile in his acting because Christian Bale is. A pretty serious and hardcore actor. That's why I never thought he'd even get close to the MCU, just because it doesn't seem like his cup of tea. Like, yeah, oh no, he totally. was in comic book movies with Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. When he, some people think he's the best Batman ever, but 
those feel more grounded and real. Whereas Taika Waititi is coming back for Love and Thunder. Just imagine Christian Bale in Thor Ragnarok. I don't see how it's going to be much different. I I'm uh, I'm just I I I, I want to know who he's going to be now. Like he's going to be voicing Meek. Oh God! Meek finally <laughs> talks this time around. What if this is his his him dipping his toes into the comedy realm? Somebody suggested, and I was like, mm, I don't think we'll meet him in Thor: Love and Thunder, but he'll eventually show up. What if he plays Adam Warlock? Ooh! Oh, I would be so down with that. I mean, I kind of want Keanu Reeves for that, but you know, uh, yeah, I'd be down with Christian. If Bale. he plays like. Uh, Adam Warlock or Quasar or um, I still kind of hold hold out hope that Nathan Fillion will be um, what's his face? Um, the, they were in the first Guardians of the Galaxy. Nova. I kind of I still kind of hope that Nathan Fillion's uh, Nova Prime. But if not, Christian Bale could be pretty cool too. I, I would be down for him Nova Prime from him. It's just. Such an odd pairing because Christian Bale is like the most hardcore of serious actors, like screaming at production assistants during Terminator Salvation type serious. Well, okay, to to his credit, it's Terminator Salvation. Okay, yeah, from, so. that's one that I actually that whole story got blown out of proportion. It's kind of a weird story, nonetheless, of like how he screamed at that guy. It's just like it was the. It was. It's a. There's more to the story than the press made it out to be. Um, yeah. But just, I can't even. Just imagine him in Thor Ragnarok, and I imagine that's what it's gonna be like in Love and Thunder. And it's. I just can't see where he would fit in. Grandmaster, maybe. But we've already got a Jeff Goldblum for that. <laughs> I just. It's gonna be interesting, man. We'll see. He'll. He can. He'll have to flex his chops to be to say the least. Again, Beta Ray Bill, please. And I can totally see that too, though, because Beta Ray Bill is a very serious character. Like I, he doesn't crack jokes a lot. Yeah, it's true. Neither does Christian Bale. Uh, it's maybe he's a villain. I'd be okay with that. I can see that too. Silver Surfer. Ooh. Uh, oh. Well, Christian Bale, I don't think has the voice for Silver Surfer. Like Christian Bale's got a voice, but not as like a commanding voice as like say what you want about that uh Rise of the Silver Surfer Fantastic Four movie, but Lawrence Fishburne was a great voice for Silver Surfer. Oh, totally. But yeah, you need like a really powerful voice. And I don't I don't think Christian Bale would be a silver surfer, but again, I just can't get over this. This is the weirdest this is the weirdest casting. But it is, but you know. They could, I mean, if anything, I now I definitely want to go see Love and Thunder just to see who he is. Yeah, I think it's it's indicative of the Hollywood landscape of not seeing the MCU as just child stuff anymore, of getting more and more prestigious actors. Yes, at the beginning, we had names like Anthony Hopkins and Thor, but over time, we've got Kate Blanchett as Hela. What is it with the Thor franchise getting all the famous people that have won Academy Awards? Natalie Portman, as much as I hate Jane Foster, she's a big name actress. Um, Anthony Hopkins, Kate Blanchett, Taika Waititi, Academy Award I mean, nominated Taika Waititi. Thank you very much. You could even, but you can argue that 
four is has always been more of a quote unquote period piece than it has been a a, a like a superhero movie. Fair. We'll see. Just, At least with the original series, uh, the first one. It's just so odd. But it makes me even that much more curious about Love and Thunder. I was already on board with most of it, not named Jane Foster, because Taika Waititi's coming back and his reputation has only grown since Ragnarok, so this makes me mm-hmm. just doubly excited. Oh, I agree. Now, a movie that I would be excited if I thought it was actually going to happen at some point is The Flash movie, directed by It Chapter 1 and Chapter 2 director Andy Muschietti, and supposedly starring Ezra Miller, but uh, you and I both have our doubts about that. Um, I don't know where this came up at, but someone recently interviewed Andy Muschietti about the upcoming Flash movie, and he seemingly did confirm what we've been suspecting for a few years now, that this movie will be... Um, an incarnation of the Flashpoint, which we will talk about what the Flashpoint is later, I'm sure, for our main discussion, which was actually the catalyst for our discussion today because Flashpoint is a very famous comic that holds special significance, I'm sure, to both of us. Um, But Andy Muschietti says something very interesting that definitely took me by surprise when he said that this Flashpoint will be, quote-unquote, very different. Um, And I don't know what to make of that first of all josh do you think this movie will be a flashpoint story two do you think Muschietti will actually be our director and three what do you think he means by very different type of flashpoint i i almost don't want it to be a flashpoint because i feel like it's too soon we haven't really done anything with flash to really get to know him but at the same time, Flashpoint is also the one, one of the most famous stories for Flash that you learn what he's about. You see him earn what he's about. So, I mean, it could work um, as far as directors go. Uh, given this movie's history, we could have a new director tomorrow. Um, and... What was the last one? Different? What does he mean by different? I... Yeah, what do you think he means by very different approach to Flashpoint? <sighs> like, Flashpoint is pretty straightforward. The the thing is, though, like, it is straightforward. If he goes and he deals with, like, just Thomas, like, I, I wonder if they're going to end up cutting out uh, all of the the big war stuff. Oh, absolutely! I think absolutely. I don't think we're gonna see evil Amazonians and Atlanteans and stuff like that, or yeah, even evil just, Batman. Yeah, I see. Okay, but I love. Okay, we'll talk about this later. But um, Thomas ba- Batman. Thomas as Batman in Flashpoint is one of my favorite Batmans. <laughs> yes, I'm sure we'll talk about this extensively later. Because um, but, so I, I and I like I like how heartbreaking that almost more heartbreaking that story is. But ooh, as yeah. far as how how different it is, it'll be intriguing to see if like I like you. I have no doubt that they'll cut out the whole war thing. But so then, if you cut that out, how although how gratifying home? would it be to see Wonder Woman decapitate Mera? Oof, oof. <laughs> Um, but I, I, but so then that, that begs the question, okay, if you don't have the war, the war thing going on, how does flash get home? What drive, you know, so it, I can see how it would be different, 
you know, cut. I mean, there's not all the characters that are involved at Flashpoint have been introduced yet. So, um, yeah, it, it's going to look different because it has to be different. I think um, this comes as no surprise to me that they were looking to make this Flashpoint. Those are the rumors that we've heard for years. And I think, yes, it is too soon for Flashpoint, but I think WB has wanted to be Flashpoint for so long because it's the only one that they know and the only way that they can think of off the top of their head to reboot but not reboot the universe. So we'll talk about it later in our main discussion, but Flashpoint is a really easy out to reset things without hard resetting things. It's a writer's get-out-of-jail-free card type thing. Um, it is. Looking it's at some like, of the people that have been attached to this movie for a while, or unofficially or unofficially have been rumored to be attached to it, it seemed very clear that they were going to do Flashpoint. Um, one of the names that I got really excited for, but unfortunately was never officially attached, and so he never was announced or anything, was Robert Zemeckis, who directed the Back to the Future trilogy. Because, to me, you don't go full-on Flashpoint with this movie, um, like the big epic scale. You can still make it a solo story that still resembles Flashpoint Barry going back to save his mother, uh, but make it like Back to the Future 2. Of He goes back, thinks everything's fine, but returns to a future society that's all messed up because of the choices that he's made. There's no Justice mm-hmm. League. There's no this, that, or the other thing. He's not the Flash anymore, so he has to become the Flash. He has to go back in time and fix what he did. It Just make it like Back to the Future, except with superpowers. We've got with so many superhero movies these days changing up the formula from what they used to be. Look at Shazam. That's basically just big with superpowers. Now time for Back to the Future with superpowers. Then, when Barry fixes everything, he goes back to his quote-unquote normal timeline. But not everything is how it was before. You don't have to change everything. As not everything was changed when Barry came back in the comics, just a lot of stuff, you can still keep Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman, um, Jason Momoa as Aquaman, but you have the door open if you want Robert Pattinson to be in the DCEU. He can be. Um, your new Superman could be introduced at some point and no one would have to bat an eye because they would just be like, well, Barry changed the timeline on us. Exactly. Which is, unfortunately for Flash, the running joke for Justice League. Yeah. The only thing I ask of this Flash movie is, for all that is good and holy in the world, can we please... Please, please, please give the Flash a different suit for his movie. Yes, please. Because I hate his one from Justice League with a burning passion. It is like my top one in my top five worst suits in any comic book movie. Yeah. It goes against it's... everything that makes his character work. Yeah, it's just weird. Also, while we're at it, can we recast Ezra Miller? I. Uh... <laughs> As much as I like Ezra Miller, I, he's he he can't be Barry. Yeah, he he, he fits can't. more with Wally, honestly. At this he point, he really does. Um, so that'll bring us to our last news topic of the week, and it seems to be at this point your weekly Uncharted movie update. Because again, revolving door of directors, and this project will never get made until Sony scraps it and just starts over clean. Um, I was initially hesitant with this director that they've attached to it. Um, and then I thought about it and saw, thought about some other movies that this director's done, and I was more on board with it. Um, 
So recently, Travis Knight just departed the project. He directed Kubo and Two Strings and Bumblebee. Very excited about that. Um, and then he left due to creative differences, i.e. Sony just being boneheads. Uh, now the new director that Sony's keeping an eye on is, again, trying to keep it in-house like they did with Tom Holland uh, with Venom director Ruben Fleischer. Now, I wasn't necessarily in love with that pick because I like but don't love Venom. So I was just like, really? We're getting the guy that did Venom to do Uncharted? Then I really thought about it and used my film brain to realize that the director of Venom also directed both Zombieland movies. Ooh. And I was much more okay with that. Also, how great would it be if we recast Mark Wahlberg, because no one wants him in this movie, no one wants him as Sully, we recast Mark Wahlberg with Woody Harrelson as Sully. Okay. Again, I'd be down. I don't want Tom Holland, but uh, on paper... I don't think this director's staying either, but it it further illustrates a really weird and interesting point to me, and I kind of want your thoughts on this, Josh. Uh, with this Uncharted movie, more so than I've seen with any other movie, Sony seems so insistent on keeping things kind of in-house from, from a certain point of view, if you want to put it that way, of look at who Sony casting a lot of their stuff. Tom Holland as Spider-Man. They want him as Nathan Drake. They seem to think he's the guy that's going to bring them big bucks for future projects, not realizing that names don't sell movies anymore. It's properties and franchises. Um, So they want a Sony actor. Now they want a Sony director. Is this like a, they want to keep things in-house? Are they too afraid to like branch out? I just think it's so weird that they keep going with people that they've already worked with for things instead of like getting potentially who might actually be a good fit. Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that, that is the case. I I can't really see a reason why they wouldn't go outside, outside of house. Um, And to their credit, they're not really in a place right now that they can take a lot of chances from what I've heard, they also want to they want to get him in. I don't think necessarily think they think he's the best option, but they're trying to get a director mainly so they can start filming before Tom Holland has to start filming the next Spider-Man. So to me, that just means they care more about a person being in there that is a yes man that will do what they say to slot into the position and not actually the best guy for the job. Well, I mean, that's, that's typical Sony stuff, so. But... <sighs> At this point, and I've said it before, this film's totally getting delayed. It's not going to be out this Christmas. There's no chance in hell. No. But oh, at this point, with how much issues this has had and how much they're completely misreading the project, can we just let this go? And this is coming from me. Can we just scrap this and start over? There's a great tweet, I think, uh, from Mike Kalinowski. He's just like, you guys are completely misunderstanding why people fell in love with this series. Of, We don't want young Nathan Drake. Yes, we've had young Nathan Drake in the games. But age him up just a little bit. We want swashbuckling adventure, not guy that... It's like having a Superman movie about a teenage Superman. Yeah. We want full form. Yeah, this isn't the adventures of Tintin. This is... Hey, man. Don't be talking crap about Tintin. I say that with a lot of love. I say that with a lot of love. But Adventures of Tintin needs is its thing. You don't need to try to make Uncharted like that. Do we get Peter Jackson to direct this? 
I mean, why not? Like he did with Tintin? No, I'm still, I think the perfect man for the job also already works for Sony. If you're so insistent on keeping actors and directors in-house, you already have a perfect director for Uncharted in Jake Kasdan. Okay, I'm done. Who did yeah. the first two Jumanji movies, these new rock which Jumanji is, movies, which those are already uh, just Uncharted movies come to life. No, they're very, very good movies. They, they're they better movies than they deserve to be. <laughs> Absolutely, which is exactly what Uncharted deserves. Yes. So I don't know if this will stick or not. I'm just getting so frustrated with this movie. More frustrated than I already was, but it's just... They had me. I was, I've been a loyal, this movie will happen up until the Mark Wahlberg thing. That shattered yeah. my faith in the project. It really did. Yeah. Because even then, the Tom Holland thing, I didn't agree with it, but I still could see their perspective on it and was defending that to a lot of people. And I still will defend it for the most part, but that Mark Wahlberg casting just ruins it for me. Like... You are clearly, you don't care about the IP, you're just using the IP to sell a half-baked adventure story. Yeah, exactly. Which is old Sony, not new Sony, which is frustrating. No, dude. I mean, Sony's never going to to excel if they continue doing that. Which is unfortunate because it doesn't look like they're doing that with Morbius. Yeah, I don't, maybe it's because Morbius they were very hands-off on. I have no idea. Which I... I wouldn't be surprised. Morbius, they are very hands-off on, whereas Uncharted, since it is such a well-known franchise, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a case of too many cooks of, like, the film studios involved, whereas the video game uh, studios involved. Everybody's involved. Nolan North himself is involved. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't be surprised either. Well, Josh, you got a sponsor for us this week? Um, not really, man. I, uh, it's been so busy this week. I haven't really done much as far as... I don't eat out much anymore or anything like that. So, Well, given that we'll talk, we're talking about comic books, we'll say uh, either DC Universe or Comixology because catch up on your comics, people, and we can give you some good recommendations this week. Oh, absolutely. If, if, if you haven't read these already. <laughs> yeah, there's several that I'm looking at the list, and I'm glad to see we have quite a few crossovers. Um, unfortunately... This is going to sound horrible. I have no Marvel movies. I have no Marvel comics on my list. I thought wow. long and hard about this. Um, but what we're talking about today is like actual story arcs. So like things that could be definitively labeled as this is a story. They're sold as a book. And unfortunately, I just couldn't think of any Marvel ones that I'm familiar with off the top of my head. I actually have more Marvel comics than DC comics by a landslide. But I have single issues. So, like, if I had to pick a Marvel one, but it's not even really a story, it's the original Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, Spider-Man run, those first couple issues when he encounters the Sinister Six. But that doesn't feel like a story. It feels like episodes of an animated series. Yeah. No, and I get that. That's why, like, a few of mine, I'm I'm being very specific as far as what the completed story is. And on most of them, on the two that I have that on, I can tell you um, what volumes they are. You know what I mean? So like, I can, I, I know I can pinpoint where the story begins and ends. Fair enough. Um, where do you want to start with this? I don't know. Do you want to start with the ones we both have? Sure. Let's get the big one out of the way first. Um, to me personally, 
It is the single greatest Batman story of all time. Uh, there's some close ones behind it. And maybe it's just because I started reading comics later. I didn't read the class, the quote-unquote classics like The Dark Knight Returns or The Long Halloween, which I have both those and mm-hmm. I love those. But this one to me was like the first mature, not necessarily like adult-adult, but like, holy crap, this is not the Batman animated series, which is amazing in its own right. This is its own fantastic, intricate, mature, and truly compelling Batman story that made me reevaluate how I look at comic books. Batman Hush. Mm. Mm. This is everything that you would want from a Batman story. There's incredible um, action set pieces with him fighting um, basically everyone at one point or another. Um, Something that stood out to me, even in my early days of reading comics, was the artwork for Hush is unparalleled. Jim Lee absolutely knocks it out of the park. To me... Hush is one of the most gorgeous comic books I own, except for maybe Kingdom Come. Um, well, and, and not just that. Just even some of the panels with Batman and even Catwoman are just incredible. Hush also is responsible for my single favorite, um, most favorite comic book cover ever that I actually have as a like a 4 by 4 in my office space that I've somehow, they sold it at Walmart for like one time, one time only. And it's uh, Batman 615, and it's the cover of Batman and Nightwing standing side by side, running down an alley towards the camera. Which is, oh, Just the artwork on that is so perfect. And that picture alone says a thousand words. I agree, man. It's so good. Uh, But but while we're talking about this, let's also give a kind of a brief rundown of what the story is. So if any of these sound interesting to you at home, you know what to look forward to. So uh, Batman Hush is, at its core, a really good mystery and a detective story. So um, Batman is on patrol one night. Everything's going as normal when he's swinging... um, Swinging along when a sniper takes out his cable and he falls like multiple stories and cracks his head open essentially and he's in dire need of surgery. So he morse codes to Alfred to get him uh, one of his childhood friends, Thomas Elliot, to do his surgery while he rehabs. So um, throughout the process, Batman has to try and figure out who tried to kill him. And there's a greater conspiracy of like even the criminal underworld of Gotham is being controlled by this new villain called Hush, the same person that tried to kill Batman. Uh, like Killer Croc was being blackmailed. Bane was under this guy's... Um, no, that was the animated movie. Um, all these villains are being manipulated by Hush. So it's not like one particular villain. It's all the villains you know and love all in one story, but they are not the main force. Um, then there's great scenes with Catwoman... Superman, Nightwing, basically it is everyone in this Hush movie, but it never feels too bloated. I would say, though, if you are just getting into comics, Hush may be a little too bloated for a first-time reader. I can see that. It's it's characters you are know and are familiar with, but if you've never read a Batman story, there's other ones that I would probably say read before you read this because there's not as much secondary characters that you would have to be familiar with. Um, yeah, because there is there is a lot going on in Hush. I mean, they do a really, really good job of 
making it seamless and like it's never it never tries to make the reader feel stupid with how much stuff it's throwing at you it and it doesn't over explain itself either true um now i said i wouldn't recommend hush to a first time reader but if you do like batman and you know the characters you think you know the characters pretty decently um i'd recommend that for first time readers if you're looking for a batman story I would actually always recommend one of my all-time favorite stories, which turned into one of the greatest um, animated feature adaptations of all time, Under the Red Hood. Which is a good one, man. It's interesting um, how like there's like little minor differences from the actual comics. But not much. The animated movie actually lifted yeah. like dialogue word for word. So the story of Under the Red Hood is there's a new vigilante in Gotham that's more or less doing what Batman's doing, except better and more efficiently because he has no qualms about killing people. So he's basically taking out all the high rollers of Gotham by killing them. So Batman more or less has to stop whoever's killing these people. And when he finds out who it is, it brings up some incredibly painful memories from his past. And it's very, very close and personal to him and introduces great new character. I won't even say villain to the Batman mythos, a great new character to the Batman mythos while toying with some of the ones that you're already familiar with, like um, Joker's in there, but Joker who I often think is overused in Batman stories is used perfectly in this as a mm-hmm. nice accompanying side character. Um, it's Batman and the Bat family story. Um, you know my feelings on Nightwing. I'm sure I'm going to be talking about him later. But Nightwing also is played perfectly in Under the Red Hood. He's there for a little bit, but doesn't overstay his welcome. He's voiced perfectly by Neil Patrick Harris in the animated film. Um, it's again another great mystery of who's the Red Hood. Why is he doing this? What what is the backstory? And then once you get that backstory, you feel for that character. It's just so different than a lot of other Batman stories. And I still, fingers crossed, that we get some form of the Red Hood character on the big screen at some point or some version of the Under the Red Hood storyline. I wouldn't be surprised if that's around the corner. I mean, especially with how young Neil uh, Robert Pattinson's Batman is. I mean, there's a lot of room for those stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just did two Batman ones. I have some... More Batman-related ones, but we'll get back to those in a little bit. Josh, what are some ones that you got on your list? Um, let's go. Let's stick in the DC area. Uh, let's although I will say we'll save one for last. We will save um, initials BN. We'll save that one for last. Oh, because that's on both of our lists, and I want to talk about that one. Like deep dive okay. into that. Well, okay. Well, let, let's do this then. Let's bring up Flashpoint since we were talking about or talking about it a little bit earlier. All right. Um, yeah. Flashpoint is, of course, a Flash story. Basically, what happens is um, Reverse Flash goes back in time and saves Flash's mother, which is initially nope, nope, nope. nope. Wait, what? Barry goes back in time. Oh, you're right. No, no, no. You're right. You're right. You're right. It was part of Reverse Flash's plan. So Barry yes. Allen, when he was very, very it's young, his mother was killed by Reverse Flash. As an adult, Barry Allen just uh, is fast enough that he can go back in time. So he decides, I'm going to go back in time and save my mother. But what happens when he goes back in time, Josh? 
it alters everything and because it's the it's the moment and he doesn't realize it that changes everything for him it's, it's you know just it's, like back to the future with the gambling and back to the future too if you change something in your past your futures change forever indeed and it changes things so radically that when he go quote unquote goes back to his his present um he doesn't have his powers he's no longer and, flash because he lost his motivation Exactly. And, you know, I, there's a lot of other things that are different as well as, you know, like Thomas being Batman and his wife being the Joker. And, and Bruce, Bruce is buried six feet child. under. Yeah. Like it's super interesting. And then, I mean, you could get into all of the wild things that happened with the, the world war, but jeez, like, man. <laughs> Flashpoint introduced like a really cool potential Elseworld, but also at the same time, being canon too it's it happens in barry's reality but it's a reality that now because the rebirth is now dead um but like josh said we have a very murderous thomas wayne as our batman but because it's a different world we kind of are more accepting of it isn't that right Zack snyder um yeah but a quick aside of that um in rebirth the, there's like a prequel story to the Doomsday Clock, which is happening right now, uh, in which case Batman and Flash are trying to investigate the smiley face button that it's in the Batcave that he discovers at the beginning of Rebirth, which, of course, yeah. is the comedian's button from The Watchmen. So they more or less um, go to Thomas Wayne's Flashpoint reality, and Bruce gets to see his father one more time and fight alongside him. Um, and... Bruce is like trying to stay with his dad and his dad is just like, you can't stay here. This is not your place. Um, mm. So he like kicks him back into the time stream to go back to his own world because now that Barry has fixed the timeline, that alternate universe, anything with the new 52 doesn't exist anymore because when Barry back went back in time, he created this new timeline called the new 52, which was a comic book, an attempt to reset the comic book universe. And I'll, I'll talk about that next actually. Um, but he resets the timeline for Rebirth. So anything that happened in the New 52 is now gone and erased forever. So Thomas sees his universe is now collapsing forever and he will cease to exist. But he goes out in the coolest way possible. Spoiler alert, he stands up. He's just like, uh, what do Waynes do? We rise. And he runs into the nothingness. And I'm like, dude. It's a great moment, man. And the big thing for Flashpoint was that it does it. It's a cornerstone for so many other events. Also, it's got a great like grown men cry tears moment at the end, oh, dude. With the letter, the letter. Oh, I don't want to ruin that because that's such a great moment. But yes. It is such a good moment for both Flash and Batman. Um, but, oh, man. But also there's another good moment of Barry having to understand and realize that being a hero means you have to sacrifice some things. And mm. great things can come out of tragedy. And that was his case. Um, yeah. yeah, Flashpoint is just so good because it's so different of going back in time. It's all Barry's fault. And it's... It's a Justice League story about the Flash, just like we'll talk about uh, a Green Lantern story later. We'll save that for last. That's a Green Lantern story about the Justice League. 
Um, yeah, but we talked about uh, Barry going back in time, which sets up the New 52, which was an attempted relaunch for DC Comics because comics can get really complicated and convoluted. So they wanted to start from scratch. Um, that was not met with a lot of great feedback at the time. But me, I didn't know that at the time. I was still relatively new to comics, but I remember distinctly uh, New 52 launched in 2011. And that was one of the events that really got me into comics. And case in point, the next one on my list is the first comic my wife ever bought me, Justice League, The New 52, Secret Origin, which is, which would later get adapted into Justice League War, the animated movie, of more or less the New 52 version of how the Justice League met and became a team. Um, when I first started reading The New 52, I didn't know it was bad. There's certain stories that I really, really still enjoy. The New 52 was good if you're a Batman fan, and that's about it. Everyone else got the hose. Um, mm-hmm. but it was, that was one of the first stories that really got me into comics. And again, it's Jim Lee's artwork. It's, um, Jeff Johns is writing who we'll talk about him later. The man's at least in the world of comic books is a genius. Jeff Johns is my boy, man. <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, but secret origin will always hold a special place in my heart. It, New 52, I get what they were going for, and I appreciate some parts of it, mainly Scott Snyder's Batman run, but I'm, I'm glad we now have the Rebirth instead, but I still very much enjoy my Secret Origins and Justice League War. Now, can we get Rebirth in the animated universe, please? <laughs> no, that's not how that works. Um, <laughs> Josh, we'll put the plot back to you for a couple all right, man. Um, have you ever heard of, and I think it, what's interesting is I'm the only one between us, I think, uh, that has something outside of DC and Marvel. I thought about putting some Ninja Turtles, but I don't know any of their story arcs. And that's okay. Um, have you ever heard of Invincible? Does it star Mark Wahlberg? No. <laughs> the comic book series, bro. <laughs> Does it star Mark Wahlberg? No, I mean, it could, to be quite honest. Um, But it's put out by Image. Um, It's a superhero story. Uh, Basically, the main kid's dad is essentially Superman. He's called Omega Man. Omega Man sounds very familiar. Yeah, I know, right? Um, I think it's Omega Man. I haven't read it in a while. All my comics are packed away right now, and I, I haven't had a chance to read them all again um but essentially like he's he uh you know that's his dad and he hasn't gotten his powers yet and so he it's about it's the first i want to say four volumes are his true origin story and there's some stuff that he finds out about his dad like where he's actually from and why he's actually on earth and all this kind of stuff and it quickly goes from a light-hearted superman uh you know, knockoff to <laughs> something uh, completely different. It's written by the guy that wrote the Walking Dead com- uh, comic comics. Oh, if that uh, gives you Kirk, any, any, any ind- indication on how, how dark it goes. Huh? It's very good. I'd recommend it to just about anybody. I mean, uh, that's of a certain age because it does. There are some sexual themes. There are some very, very bloody battles, um, but it's very, very good. And it's a coming of age. It's um, a a story of you know you, you don't have to be 
who others say you are and stuff like that. It's a very good story. I like it a lot. Hmm. Sounds interesting. What else you got? Um, let's pop back over to Marvel. Um, since I'm yeah, let's knock your Marvel ones out. You got a couple. I do. Um, the a couple ones that I have were, were gifts to from Christmas. I think Ben gave them to me. Um, Deadpool kills the Marvel universe is a one-off, and it that's all it deserves to be. But. Dear Lord, is it fun? Because <laughs> Deadpool goes off and decides to kill the entire Marvel Universe. <laughs> that's that's literally all you need to know. <laughs> um, the other one is uh, Daredevil. I don't, off the top of my head, know what the actual name of the, that arc is. But essentially the storyline is, and I can, if, if anybody's interested, let me know. I can send you information of where it is but it's a daredevil comic where basically it's like two or three volumes murdoch matt murdoch is actually gets sentenced and charged for being daredevil and he goes ends up going to prison and then daredevil starts appearing all over the city so it's like a story of you know okay first of all matt murdoch uh everyone thinks he's daredevil and now he's going to jail with all of these criminals that he's put away um, and then also Daredevil's just still showing up. So if it's not Matt, who is it? And so then, you know, as the reader, you, you have questions on who Daredevil is and all the stuff. It's very good. Cause I mean, at one point the Punisher breaks into jail. No, he doesn't break in. He gets himself arrested to go to jail with Matt to fight alongside him in like in, in the, the jail yard. <sighs> That's an ultimate bro move right there. Oh, dude, total bro move. So, um, you talking about a fake daredevil in the city reminds me of one of my ones that are on my list of one of my stories that I, since it's a relatively short one, I read frequently and all the time. And it has everything to do with the fact that it's nice and short, but it's impactful and meaningful and still features... One of, if not my favorite characters of all time, Dick Grayson, in Battle for the Cowl. So, uh, the story of Battle for the Cowl is Bruce Wayne has died. He was killed by Darkseid. Um, in reality, he was just sent back in time um, through comic book logic. Um, and someone is got in Gotham uh, impersonating Batman except killing criminals. And so there's this big void in the city of who is going to step up and be the new Batman. Gotham always needs a Batman. Um, and everyone in the Bat family from Alfred to Tim Drake, uh, to Batgirl, everyone is looking at Dick Grayson slash Nightwing because he was the first Robin. He knew Batman better than anybody. They're just like, okay, at what point are you going to stop hiding from your adopted dad and accept the role that you were supposed to have. And he's just like, that was a role I never wanted. That's why I left Batman to begin with because I didn't want to be him. So he's got this great emotional turmoil. There's this great panel where he's looking at all the empty bat suits uh, in the bat cave. And he's just like, it's like looking in my dead dad's closet of, I can't, his shadow is so large. I just can't escape that. It's, him coming to terms with um, he needs to accept the responsibility that really 
is his and his alone. To me, if anything happens to Batman, Nightwing needs to be the new Bruce. He needs to be the new Batman. So in a sense, it kind of feels Battle for the Cow to me has always kind of felt a little like Lion King of a cocky and arrogant little character that runs away after a while to discover himself and then is reluctant to step into the throne and the responsibilities that he so desperately needs to be filling. Um, So he has to fight this imposter Batman who may or may not be related to the Under the Red Hood story that we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, He has to finally accept the role that he was always meant to be, which is the new Batman. And it's just a great payoff to the story for Dick Grayson of starting as Robin, becoming who he was as Nightwing, and then finally becoming Batman. And my hot take for the episode, and I don't care how much flack I get, he became a better Batman than Bruce Wayne ever was. Yeah, I mean, that's not hard <laughs> in and, some aspects. In all honesty, his run as Batman is one of the most fun in comics because you have a um, quippy and more lighthearted Batman, but a more solemn and serious Robin with Bruce Wayne's son, Damien, um, which created for a really fun dynamic. It was, I just read Battle for the Cow all the time. I just think it's so expertly done by Scott Daniel. It's it's a good story if you're a Nightwing fan or just even if you're a comp book fan of Batman is more than just a person. It's a legacy that anybody could fill type of thing like Zorro. It has to be passed down, but it has to be the right person. And it was rewarding and fulfilling. And yeah, it was, it's everything a comic book should be. It shows growth in a character and beautiful artwork. Just, I love Battle for the Cowl. It'll never actually happen on the big screen, but I can dream, Harold. (laughs) I guess so. I mean, there's a lot of dreaming going on these days. Now, I see on your list you have another Batman one that also may tie into Under the Red Hood. Yeah, just a tiny bit. I mean, I, I just wanted to clarify because it's super confusing uh, in the world of comics. This is death yes. of the family, not death in death of the family, right? Yeah, death of the family. Not death, death of the family in. or death in the family. Death of. It's the one where Joker. Okay. Okay. Yes. Gets everybody. Because it's super confusing, folks, because there is a death of the family, and then there's a death in the family that took place 20 years earlier. Yes. It's it's really, it's really really funny, because they're both Batman stories. Yeah, but, you um, need the Paul Rudd gift. Perfectly family, not confusing. Yeah, it, death of the family literally starts with, and I actually haven't read the arc that's before this, but legitimately starts with... And I don't know why, but Joker stealing back the face that he his own face that he carved off from the from the Gotham PD evidence locker, doesn't he? That's how it's I believe so. If I remember right. Again, I remember saying to Heather, Death of the Family is one of the darkest Batman stories you could ever read. And it's probably a little too intense for you. (laughs) Yeah, because it's it's the one where he legitimately staples his old face back to his on it onto his head. Not just that. I there's a certain limit I think to Joker, and I think death of the family I think pushed a little too far. But also in terms mm-hmm. of just take Joker out of it, the things that he subjects the family to, mm-hmm. it, it just seems a little too intense. And I was just like, this seems a little. 
I'm okay with dark stories so long as the resolution is good at the end. And I didn't feel like mm-hmm. the catharsis at the end was just like, I didn't feel, ah, victory in the end. It yeah, still was like I, a I, lingering I wound in the end. I mean, I think, but that's the point is that it's yeah, not. Yeah, there was the, the death of the family. Yeah, it's not. The whole whole thing that Joker is doing is not necessarily like, oh, ha, 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 see, I can get you guys anytime I want. It's he's subjecting them to things that they're already scared of, issues that they already deal, deal with and haven't dealt with in a, health, in a healthy way. Like a lot of the stuff that he gets them with, if like uh, psychologically, if they had just dealt with them, you know, previously, they would be okay. But I mean, there's that, that the fact that Joker basically, and I, I still don't know how I feel about him going as far as he does to staple his face to his own face again. Um, but to me, that is the, the sign to the reader of, okay, this is Joker. Yes. But he has snapped, snapped. Like he's was already crazy. Now he's, strictly homicidal so it's it's intriguing to say the least as if anything it's a good one of the best books out there that is a dark social commentary on the ideals of being a superhero and what that means and again it comes from that fantastic new 52 batman run like we said new 52 was great if you loved batman but not yes. a whole lot else also, he I refuse to forgive them from turning Nightwing into a red guy. Yes, basically. Jeez. Um, but I see you have something else DC-related, and also from our boy Jeff Johns. Oh, dude. Okay, so real quick story about this one. Um, first of all, it is no secret around here that you and I love Teen Titans. Um, but... This I read this this uh, this run of Teen Titans like way back in like middle school. It was like the first like full story that I read for Teen Titans, and I just I fell in love with it. And it was my first comic real like real comic story, and just fell in love with that that world from that point on. And so many 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 years later, like we're talking maybe two or three years ago. I was like, geez, man, because I got it from the library, so I didn't, I never actually ha- had it in my possession. So I was like, oh, that would be, I, I would, I'm in a position of, I got some extra cash, I should start trying to collect that series again. And I like walked into Barnes and Noble and was like, okay, cool. So there's a lot of Teen Titans books. Uh, I'm gonna have to just sit here and flick through them and see if I see anything I recognize. And I, the first one I picked was Jeff John's Teen Titans and sure enough it, that was the series so it was so anyway, I can I can sit here and say that Jeff John's is, is responsible for my love of comic books um, but it's in in general it is my favorite iteration uh, iteration of, of Teen Titans um, if I may this is not the last time we'll talk about Jeff John's we'll save one of our favorite Jeff John Jeff John stories for last, um, but Jeff John's actually is responsible for one of my favorite Superman stories of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've read this one or not. Uh, Superman's Secret Origin. 
I see. I've heard of it, and I, but I think I've only heard of it because you talk about it. It is so good. Some of my favorite artwork. It's so gorgeous. But it is. It's as straightforward as it sounds, but sometimes straightforward is okay. It is literally just Superman's origin story, um, but it's yep. so pure and straightforward that I find I've just found it so charming. And coming from an era that we seem to just be having nothing but dark and depressing Superman, it was nice to be able to go back and read something just like, oh yeah, we're gonna be just good old fashioned old school Superman and just enjoy every minute of it. Um, yeah, just being Superman and being good, um, and just little moments. Like there's a moment where there's some big macho guy that's trying to hit on Lois. That's like, um, like big military. So he comes up to Clark, um, and just like tries to bully him and offers to shake his hand and like tries to squeeze Clark's hand and Clark just stands there completely unflinching. And then Clark returns the handshake by like squeezing the crap out of the guy's hand. So basically mm. like drops to a knee. And then Lois is like, I've never seen that before. He's just like, oh, he seems nice. <laughs> like Dude, totally I mean, playing it off. Also the ultimate flex move. Um, oh, totally. It's but, it's why I love that move of in Man of Steel when he, when he destroys that guy, that trucker's truck. Yep. Of uh, just... Every once in a while, you got it coming. It's, it's a story that we're so well familiar with at this point. It's like comfort food. But how it, yeah. was, like it was drawn beautifully, the dialogue was excellent. It cuts straight to the core of Superman, and I love it. Um, another Superman story that I discovered fairly recently through the wonders that is the DC Universe app, or else I never would have even heard of this story because I've only seen it in book form recently, um, is one called Superman for All Seasons. And... The genius of this story is it's not one continuous story arc, but four individual Superman stories that take place over the course of a year, each told from a different person's perspective is Superman's life in a different season of the year. Um, so, like, you'll have, I think, Lex Luthor narrates, like, the winter season, Lois Lane narrates one season, um, Ma Kent, and I think Clark himself narrates one. But the paint... Like, the artwork in it almost feels like a painting at times. It doesn't feel like a traditional comic book, but it is. it almost kind of has that old-school um, Dark Knight Returns type style of very blocky, while mixed with almost like a Bob Ross paint. Uh, and it's just beautiful, but also very old-school, traditional Superman of um, just being good for the sake of it. One of my favorite lines, because it's so cheesy, but it also just fits the character of Superman, of a kid is like doing something stupid, like playing too close to a ledge or something, like falls, and Superman flies up to catch him. And it's the first time we finally see him in costume. And um, Superman's just like, be careful. And he's just like, okay, hey, I like your outfit. And Superman just turns back to the kid and smiles at him. He's like, thanks, my mom made it. And I'm just Aww. like... I'm like, oh, that's that's Superman right there. Um, just being a proud mama's boy and just being a heart of gold. Uh, just the whole story really cuts to the core of Superman and really, it just gets who he is and it just becomes a really enjoyable story. There's not like a big grand villain to save at the end of the day. It's It's a character study and it's like people 
talking about a good friend of theirs. And I, it was a different approach to a story that I really, really enjoyed. And I can never recommend it enough. A lot of people talk all the time about like All-Star Superman or the death of Superman. But I, I've always liked four all seasons. And I was just like, I can never recommend this enough. Um, I think we're closing up shop. But I see you've got one more. And then we'll talk about our big one that on, is on both of our lists. Yes. Um, last one for me before the end is, uh, I don't think anybody, if you guys listen to the pod a lot, um, you'll know that my favorite Spider-Man is Spider-Man Unlimited because it's awesome. <laughs> the, for me, if you say so. I mean, okay. So for me though, the, what attracted me was more the artwork. Yes, I, mean, I will story, give you that. Un- yeah. The Ultimate Spider-Man has like artwork that I really have not seen anywhere else. Yeah, it's so unique and it's beautiful. At times, it's 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 very grand, more grand than it, it really needs to be. But like, it was like whoa. Um, it was I, I started reading it when I was in you know towards the the peak of middle school, going into high school. So it was. And in Unlimited, that's where he that's where Peter starts. That's where the story basically picks up. So I was like, okay, cool. Like, so I, I in a way, I grew up with with Peter in those books, essentially. So it was it, I, I'll never forget those those rid that origin arc uh, specifically. It's like the first four or five volumes. Um of Spider-Man Unlimited. It, it's just fantastic storytelling and seeing somebody become the hero that their uncle knows they can be. <laughs> I will say, um, I did read like the first three volumes of Ultimate Spider-Man around the same age you did. Um, while it didn't resonate with me as much, I will always remember, uh, for better or for worse, whether you agree with them or not, Ultimate Spider-Man took some really big swings at things they like they were not oh, afraid yeah. to try new things in the world of comics we always say that people are like oh they're really trying new things but they're they're really not i was like this batman story is completely different it's they're all more relatively the same whereas ultimate spider-man really did try and mix things up you've got it did their drastically different approach to green goblin um mm-hmm. especially electro they really they, tried to change things up, and whether you agree with it or not, they definitely like tried some things, which is not that common in comic books too often. A lot of writers will try and play it safe to maintain sales, but Ultimate Spider-Man really, I feel like, did try some risks. And no, it, it did, did. Like you said, it brought in a new audience of new readers, which in the long it term, did. that's what you want. Well, and I think for all the off the top of my head, Given the context of the story, the risks that they took worked really well. Oh, absolutely. Um, now, let us talk about the last one. The one is on both of our lists. And to be fair, DC Comics has had a lot of major events over uh, the years, like Crisis on Infinite Earths, Infinite Crisis... Um, Whenever they fight Darkseid, it seems to be a big conflict. My favorite mass-level event of, like, huge, almost endgame-level quality, to me at least, is uh, Jeff John's Blackest Night, which is 
kind of a Green Lantern story, but also kind of a Justice League story, um, in the sense that Flashpoint is a Flash story, but it's at also a everyone story. So the story of Flash of Blackest Night and Josh, feel free to butt in if I get any details wrong. Um, but no, the current good. landscape of the Justice League and everyone else in the DC universe is. There's still plenty of heroes out there, but there over time a lot of our well-known characters uh, have passed on for one reason or another, whether they were killed in action or this, that, and the other thing. Uh, people like Batman, Aquaman, Martian Manhunter, um, Wally West, yeah, I believe. There was a there's a yeah. lot of different characters that had died. Um, well, and the the big thing too, real quick though, about Batman's death is it seems to be mysterious that no one really knows what happened. Which that ties into earlier when we talked about Battle for the Cowl. And mm-hmm. I will give a slight spoiler here. Um, his death is not resolved in Blackest Night, which leads into a very interesting and cool um, side story for Batman, um, which I actually really enjoy that storyline too. Um, so there's all these different heroes. So... Let's just say the army that is uh, Justice League and the DC heroes is still strong, but not nearly as strong as it could be if they had their full grouping. So there arises a new villain called the Black Hand, who in the Green Lanterns, um, their rings more or less can create anything from their power rings. Their power rings are controlled by their willpower. And within the different, there's different colored rings. There's different things besides green. There's black, there's white, there's blue. Go Blue Lanterns. Those are my homeboys. Blue Lanterns are my favorite. Uh, And they're all powered by different things. Blue is powered by hope. Red is powered by rage. Green is willpower. Orange is envy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Orange is hunger. No, orange is envy. Larflees is the only orange lantern. Keep going. I'm gonna look. And this he's up. envious. That's why he hunts down Santa Claus. Because no, comics are because weird. Because one of the. Okay, I'm gonna look this up really quick. Because I'm. I could have sworn. Because I know there's a character that gets in in this book that gets an orange one, and all he can talk about is just being hunger for hungry for more and more. I thought. If we're jumping at, I thought Lex Luthor got the orange. Lantern, because he's greedy. It might, I mean, I guess... I think it's greed. I think it's greed, because it, hunger and greed can be kind of interchangeable there. But, but yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah I'm going to go greed rather than uh, whatever you said. Envy? I, yeah, rather than envy. I think, I think it's but yeah, greed. What we're saying is all the powers, the rings and the lantern cores, respectively... Uh, are powered by different things. And more or less, at this point, they kind of all get along. There'll be, like, certain inter-core fighting between, like, say, green and yellow, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But by and large, they kind of get along. Then comes the Black Hand and the Black Lantern. So instead of being powered by something positive, like willpower, love, uh, hope, they are powered by death. So this character called the Black Hand has already died, and has come back to life more powerful than ever because he's fueled by death. So basically, if you die, you only become more powerful. So um, he basically starts to kill some of the people that are art that the living members of the Justice League, the living members of the 
good characters in the DC universe. So in addition to their already dwindling number, he's taking out some of those, but he's also bringing back to life the dead characters that we've already know are missing, like Aquaman, Mm -hmm. Martian Manhunter, um, the Atom, et cetera, et cetera. So he's raising up this whole undead army, like um, Walking Dead or Lord of the Rings, I guess, um, to fight and more or less take over the world. So he's, um, the Lanterns are in a bad state. So they actually have to work together for the first time, like ever. And we're going to spoil the comic here because I really want to talk about the ending here. So if you if you want to know, if you don't want to know anything, what happens at the end is one of my favorite single moments in any comic book of just endgame level, assemble level awesomeness. So um, what happens is they're, the Justice League and the rest of the DC heroes, their backs are literally against the wall. They have no other options. And so... The rule, not rulers, but like the old wise guys that are in charge of the Green Lanterns, conveniently, conveniently remember the detail that oh, in times of peril, we can forge one extra lantern of every color. Which, as Adam Sandler puts it, that's something that should have been brought to my attention yesterday. Of yep. like, they literally went until the last possible second, so they forge one ring like Lord of the Rings, uh, one ring of every color and the ring will decide who is the proper fit. And it's super cool to see characters that you already know and are established in DC Universe suddenly becoming all the more powerful because they're equipped with a lantern ring. So you get Lex Luthor with the orange ring of greed. Uh, You get Scarecrow with a yellow ring of fear because... That's his whole thing. That makes, you you get yeah. <laughs> Wonder Woman with the pink uh, lantern ring for love. But by far, my favorite moment of all of this is Barry Allen the Flash getting the blue yeah, lantern baby. ring of hope and coming in looking so cool with a blue Flash suit with the powers of a blue lantern because as we've already established, well, many times over the comics... Barry is always the most hopeful and optimistic hero in the DC universe. So naturally the ring goes to him and oh, it's such a, it's like Captain America lifting Thor's hammer. It was so cool to see a moment that I didn't think actually could feasibly fit together, fit together. It was the first time for me in comics where like, I like, cause they, they hide that page very, very well. They, they keep that moment away and then you flip it and it's a double page panel. It is a double, um, and oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, it and just then, hit me. I was popping too. I popped so hard. The only time I popped harder, and I actually read all this in one sitting in like an hour. The only time I popped Same. harder was a few pages later. So, um, that gets them, if Captain America wielding Thor's hammer was the equivalent of Barry getting um, the Blue Lantern ring, if you know Endgame... Cap only lasts a little bit with the hammer before he eventually gets beat up by Thanos again. That's more or less kind of what happens with the League. They got a temporary boost with everyone having the lanterns, but they're running low on reinforcements. When all of a sudden, just like in Endgame, the Justice League get their reinforcements with all the dead characters coming back as their healthy, 
totally sane characters. They're all back from the dead. So you get Aquaman back, Martian Manhunter back, uh, the Atom back. All the dead characters have been, some of them have been dead for several years, returning back into main comic book continuity. Um, And that was another big two-paneler of, holy crap, everyone's back. Mm. Doesn't and this is like the this is the, one of the emergence of a White Lantern, isn't it? I'm trying to remember. Yes, it is because it's Hal Jordan. So if mm-hmm. the Black Ring is death, the White Ring is life. And seeing a White Lantern was pretty legit. I mean, I've already seen it because of the you know my favorite Lantern story, um, Kyle Kyle. Um, Kyle Rayner and his yeah Rayner, but um, it's still such a big moment of him being like, all right, you know what, this is, I've had enough. <laughs> I've had I've had enough for your crack. <laughs> Get out of here. Just the epic scale of it. Of it's, I talked earlier about hush. Of you can't just drop someone right into hush. You probably could. You really cannot just drop someone into blackest night. Because oh, not at all. there's so much before and after that you kind of need explanation on. But if you're all, if you are caught up on it, it is such a rewarding story because, like I said, some of the characters that are reintroduced in the storyline have been gone for a long time. It would be mm-hmm. like the MCU equivalent of, say, there's a character that you liked in the first Iron Man that comes back in Endgame. It's been that long since you've seen them. It was yeah. it. It was like writing a wrong, but also just the gratifying conclusion to a very long story. Like Blackest Night gets really dark at times, like really dark and really intense. But that's the darker the story, the better the payoff has to be at the end. And I feel like Blackest Night has such a rewarding payoff, and I loved it so much. But I also like how, despite the rewarding payoff. It still keeps that mystery of like interesting that everyone came back except for Batman. And yep. I think if and I you had to right, figure out, you had to go to Batman's comics to figure out why and yep. go to well, Under the Red Hood, right not the, Under the Red Hood, Battle for the Cowl to figure out what Gotham was going to do and stuff. Yes, it was really, really interesting. I mean, again, the you know the new Fifty Two. If you weren't a Batman fan, you got screwed over because Batman basically. At the peak of 52 becomes basically a god. So there's that. Um, <laughs> and every story revolved around him, and he got like three or four titles. The Bat family had all their own titles, yeah. but Shazam had nothing. Yeah, it was it was rough. But I mean, Blackest Night is easily one of my favorite comics of all time. Oh, same. It's just it's one of those ones that I would love to see in a movie someday, but it, we never will because of how much setup would have to be necessary for it. It would be DC's Endgame essentially if they don't do a good version of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yeah. Well, what do you guys think? What are some of your all-time favorite comic book story books or arcs? Let us know in the comments below. We always like hearing from you guys. And as always, if you like what you hear and you want to hear more, subscribe to the channel. Or follow us on whatever audio platform you're listening to us on, whether that's Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. And if you haven't already, subscribe to us on the main YouTube channel at Uncharted Media. And as always, stay sharp, movie guys and gals.